So welcome back to the Birdie Bug Pod. Episode 21. So hey, we're back. A week late, but we are back. Oh, we are a week late, aren't we? Yeah, I got stuck in traffic and we ran out of time. <laughs> you got stuck in traffic for a week? Yeah. <laughs> I've only just that got here. That was a very big traffic jam, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, we ran out of time in between other commitments last week to record because i got stuck in traffic yes so it's all your fault not mine well and traffic's fault but we are back we've just got to try and remember what it was that we were going to talk about last week yeah we're going to do a little uh, species specific episode today. Got, we did quite a few of them at the start and maybe what two months ago we did like a, a sequence of four or five species episodes we've yeah. taken a bit of a break done some things that have been different yeah it's nice to be back talking about a single species uh, and the you, issues they face. Yes, yeah, certainly is for me because it's all about a bird today. And a bird that you rather like. Uh, indeed, yes. Uh, and we're going to talk today all about the nightingale. But let's have a little catch up first. You haven't got anything at all, have nope. you? No, weather's been bad. I've been nothing. inside. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> no. And, and, you know, and this is three weeks now and you've got nothing. I had quite a lot of the Croatia one because we had true. Croatian-related catch-up. Yeah, okay. And I did the nep estate. Oh, yes, that's and true. I did my yeah, that swim. was last catch up though. You can't just say because I did a lot last time. I don't have to have anything this time. I don't have anything this okay. time. Well, I, I there, there I am berating you, and I've only got a little bit. I've been doing a little bit more work for the RSPB, and I've been writing a really interesting article all about biodiversity and new developments, which has been. It sounds boring, but it's not. It's really interesting because actually, from um, November of this year it's going to be mandatory that all new developments um, can show a 10% biodiversity gain. In other words, leaving the site 10% better for biodiversity than when they started. So that's going to be a tricky become, thing to monitor, it's a, but it's a, it's a it's really tricky, good thing But to there try. are lots and lots of um, measures that can be taken uh, when the planning application is put in to prove that you are attempting to make this yeah, biodiversity which is always a positive. Uh, gain um, which is great so it's been really interesting reading about all those measures i'm not going to bore you with any of those because actually what i'm hoping that you'll do is go on to read the article uh, the, yeah read the article on these networks that uh, that will be uploaded onto you have so, to do a little post when it's out or yeah, stick I'll a link in your story i'll certainly something. stick a link um you can, i can stick a link into those networks at the end of this uh, episode anyway in the show notes so um yeah because i think also there should be an article somewhere about nightingales i wrote all about nightingales on those exactly networks. so yeah. if people end up coming away from this and wanting to learn even more about nightingales yeah. you go read your article yes so indeed. we'll stick a link to that in the show notes too yeah anyway so that's all i've got as you may know if you uh, have listened to any of the previous episodes recently um i bought a new camera and the weather's been so rubbish has been bad i think i've probably taken about 100 pictures on it and that's it and i've had it for nearly a month so i'm hoping that the weather's going to get better and i can get out and about and take some decent shots but um and i'll try and do something at some point you need you need to take insects while they're still there yeah the weather's been pretty bad yeah okay all right so let's move on so uh, we'll crack on with the episode, shall we? Yeah, let's go straight into all about nightingales. Similar sort of structure, if you've listened to any of our other species episodes, where we'll do a little bit of an introduction. I'm sure Dad's brought some cool cultural facts. Yeah, um, I've got a few. We'll look at what's happening with their population 
is as far as declining and and the causes of that and then also as always we'll go into some of the conservation efforts and the organizations that are working hard to to either stop that decline or, or bring them back yeah i mean as you as you again if you've listened to our previous episodes on species you we, we normally try to focus on uh, species that are having a big uh, you know having a bad time as far as population decline is concerned and the nightingale is definitely one of those in certainly in in britain um there's been a massive decline and we'll talk about that a bit later on but let's get into the what it is what it is nightingale lucinia megarinchos i think that's pretty good pronunciation not bad was it no. it could be megarinchos megarinchos no. no it's gonna be mega so lucinia megarinchos is the nightingale um I would be really surprised if there's many of you out there have actually seen the nightingale. They're very secretive birds, um, not much bigger than a robin, so they're quite small. They're quite plain in appearance. Um, the males and females are quite hard to tell apart. I hadn't seen one until we went to Croatia. I've yeah. never seen one in no, the UK. No, absolutely. I'd only ever seen one once. I think I might have mentioned it uh, in a previous episode. I saw one at uh, RSPB Pulver Brooks where I managed to, and that was five o'clock in the morning, managed to get a couple of pictures before it disappeared but they're very secretive birds they they do like to hide away in in the scrubland and in the thickets so they're really hard to see you're definitely more likely to hear one than see one um so they're a migratory bird they come to the uk in about mid-april to breed they overwinter in west africa and then they return there late summer so that's a round trip of about six thousand miles. They do. Yeah, it's quite. Um, it's quite a trek. Which is quite a, quite a trek. It's also we are quite northerly for their distribution. Yes. You see, you, I said we saw them in Croatia, yeah. and while we are going to talk about their decline in the UK, they are not. They've never been a super common bird. We are sort of right on the fringe of their of their distribution. Yeah, which is why mostly the population in the uk is mostly in uh, probably south of the seven and the wash they're mostly in kent and um sussex and norfolk suffolk a little bit in dorset a little well. bit in dorset so the very south southeast corner of um of england really is that is where you're more than likely to hear them rather than see them but so um yeah very secretive bird but of course one that is known more than anything else for its uh, for its song and we experienced that yeah. in Croatia, didn't we? Which was quite incredible. But I didn't realise that their name comes from the fact that obviously night being night time, yeah. and then the old English word gallon, which is to sing. Yeah, so it night, just means night sing. Yeah, night sing or night songstress, which was an Anglo-Saxon word apparently. But um, and of course culturally, we can talk about that culturally. But first of all, like I said, they're very secretive. Um, they like to hide in thick shrubs and bushes, and and the only it's only the males that sing so uh, it's always unpaired males that sing and they'll do that they'll keep singing mostly at night or first thing in the morning but mostly at night and sunset um until they found a mate so that's why they continually sing till they're Actually, paired up on that do you know what the collective noun for Ooh, nightingales i didn't are? look for that it's quite no, cool actually. apparently it's called a watch which is derived ah. from the way they sing from dawn to dusk into the hours yeah. of darkness, keeping watch. That's brilliant. So it's I love a watch that. of nightingales, which yeah. I thought was quite cool. Yeah, so they'll sing at night to, to attract a female, and mostly singing at dawn is they they normally sing at dawn to lay claim to their territory. So um, it's more a territorial rights song in the morning once they've found a mate. But it's a bird 
culturally that's got so much information we could do we could do another episode all about it because it's inspired poets and uh, composers as well all sorts from keats milton shakespeare beethoven stravinsky and the bird's symbolism has been very significant um culturally across all sorts of different cultures so um why did you You do that oh do i keep doing that do I keep fading in and out? Yeah, you, you keep talking and then just... Sorry, I'm, I'm articulating. So, you know, you don't just sit static when you're talking. I'm articulating. I'm throwing my arms around and nobody can see that apart from you. So I apologise for that. <laughs> so stop taking the piss, all right? Um, yeah, so lots of cultural references to nightingales. And what was, what was a really good one that I did find out, which I didn't know about before... Um, is it the nightingale enjoyed celebrated duetting during one of the most famous BBC recordings ever made? It also happened to be the very first time that wildlife had ever been broadcast on radio. Oh, yeah, it's a I very famous cellist called Beatrice Harrison, and she performed a live duet with a nightingale from her Surrey garden. This was like 1924, and it was... It, was proved so popular, so incredibly popular, that it was repeated every spring until 1936. Which is very cool. And you can actually find that recording, and it is quite stunning. So you can actually hear that. You can go online and find that, and it's brilliant. Um, Lots of references going back to uh, Chinese folklore and Roman culture. Uh, In Roman culture, the nightingale was associated with the goddess Venus, symbolising love and passion and the renewal of life in spring. Um, the bird's nocturnal song was thought to inspire lovers and provide comfort during the hours of darkness. In Chinese folklore, the nightingale symbolised happiness and virtue and the power of music. Um, and all sorts of poets wrote about nightingales. John Keats' most famous one probably owed to a nightingale. Um, I also so, got apparently that the Victorians were quite fascinated with them and would actually arrange outings for groups of people to go out just to listen to yeah. them. Uh, it had a fancy word that meant essentially like a carriage full of people, which I couldn't pronounce, so I left it out. Was it a sharabang? Yeah, that was the one. Um, <laughs> yes, a sharabang. Yeah, apparently they used to mm. make take out take people out to listen to to nightingales. So, oh, actually, to be yeah. fair, it has been it's been dubbed as one of the most uh, beautiful sounds of nature, uh, and I think we haven't mentioned the fact that they can produce over a thousand different sounds. Well, I would like to go on because actually. I wanted to just talk a little bit about their song because it is incredible and I've got some stuff here and a, and a fantastic paragraph or two which I'm actually going to read word for word that the Sussex Wildlife Trust put up on their website and it's a really good description of a nightingale song and I'm going to actually, instead of you know, ad-libbing it, I'm going to read it word for All word right. because it's a really good um, paragraph. But before I do that, um, there was a study about just how many syllables and phrases a nightingale produces and is able to perform. And as a frame of reference, they came up that it was three times the syllables generated by a skylark and monstered the blackbird by more than 10 times. Because yeah, I think I've got, they can produce over a thousand different sounds. Yeah. 340 is what a skylark is capable of yeah. and a hundred for blackbirds. Yeah. So it's it really does put it, because we all think of blackbirds as being quite diverse yeah, with their song. definitely. And yet it's 10 times, 10 times more syllables, phrases. So the Sussex Wildlife Trust, I'm sure they won't mind if I read this out. 
uh, because it, it's a really good description it won't take very long the powerful but mellow song really requires extended exposure to appreciate it's not one that can be enjoyed in just a few small snippets though the song may be interpreted as an outpouring of notes there's something about the nightingale's emphatic timing it's truly superb it's such a dramatic performer there's really no other song that feels improvised in quite the same way it seems marvellously inventive, an intoxicating combination of fizzing energy, compelling restraint, theatrical drama and striking precision. Phrases within the song will typically last for just a few seconds, often with equal length pauses in between. Once learnt, the nightingale's utterly unique style really can't be confused with any other British bird. The nightingale, in its song, undoubtedly produces one of the natural world's most remarkable sounds. So that is a nice paragraph. Yeah, it's a really good paragraph, and I think you really have got to listen to one or, or experience one um, to appreciate it. And we were so fortunate in Croatia. Yeah, we did. Where, I think we mentioned in our Croatia yeah. episode that the Nightingale song was essentially like the backing track for most of the trip. Ten days of it, it, it was, was just incredible, constant. wasn't it? Um, and as I said, I hadn't seen or heard one in the UK, so it's my first time seeing and hearing yeah. nightingales and it really was quite yeah quite astonishing quite, quite amazing and and before that like i say i've only experienced it once uh before and it, and uh yeah people people come all over the from all over the country to try and listen to nightingales certainly the the birders of this uh of this world do and um again it's mostly down in the southeast of england where you'll hear them the highest density is actually found in it in in essex and suffolk and kent actually this was part of this article that I wrote um, for the RSPB. It was all about the nightingale population in Kent. And um, Kent is an incredibly important stronghold. Um, for a lot of species, to be fair. Yeah, including um, the nightingale. particularly for nightingales. Um, and their numbers have declined by 90% in the last 50 years. And the range of birds has contracted pretty much down just to this corner of of England, which so. is okay. Is that, that's an interesting point, and I guess it's quite a nice segue for us to move into. Yeah, the threats. let's move into the sort um, of habitat and the status of. But the it is an interesting point that their uh, distribution is getting smaller because with the warming of climate change, you almost expect it to get further. Yes, they would exactly, actually yeah. the the environment and the weather that they enjoy is being experienced further and further north. Yeah. So, if anything, if they were a healthy population, you'd almost expect to randomly start seeing them pop up further north in our country, yeah. not start shrinking i think that really sort of emphasizes how much they are struggling yeah um the fact that their district despite the potential improvements in weather for them they are still getting tighter and tighter as far as their distribution is concerned yeah no definitely and um as ever similar suspects well pretty much for the nightingale it's pretty much exclusively habitat loss because their habitat is quite specific and and their habitat really i mean their their ideal habitat is called an edge habitat and it's the sort of dense scrubland and woodland edge and those are often found on brownfield or greenfield sites that have been neglected or abandoned i've got it described scrubland described as or defined as where grassland and meadow changes to woodland yeah so it's characterized by lots of shrubs bushes trees and wildflowers uh, they actually particularly like a little bit of a mixture between yeah. dense vegetation, which is what they would nest in. Because weirdly, being sort of a woodland scrubland bird, they actually nest on or close to the ground. Yeah. Uh, so they need nice dense vegetation for nesting so that they can hide their young and, and keep out predators. But being 
avid insect eaters, they want a bit of open area so they can catch the flying insects. So they need a really nice mixture of dense, yeah. thick scrub and then a little bit more open meadow, open field for the for feeding. And so it's tricky for them as we typically tidy up our landscape where it's very hard edge you've got woodland and meadow you don't get that nice transitioning habitat which is like you said edge habitat where they really thrive they want a little bit of both yeah and, and that we don't is typically the, have that, that that phrase you said there of tidying up is the key a lot yeah. of these yeah, scrub, hard edge a lot of these scrubby areas and brownfields brownfield sites are being developed on and, uh, and so they're losing an awful lot of that habitat and interestingly the other large contributing factor to the loss of that habitat is deer um, yeah. specifically actually muntjac deer which are not native they were brought over um, from southeast china and taiwan it's believed uh, by the 11th duke of bedford at the turn of the 20th century as a pet as pets um, oh, okay. apparently that's why we now have muntjac deer yeah. but they they damage wood uh, development by browsing um, and so they essentially degrade that nice shrubby yeah. habitat. And as they become more prevalent, I'll just do a quick definition actually for browsing. Yeah, it's no, slightly on. different to grazing. Um, browsing is essentially feeding on leaves, soft shoots of high growing, generally woody plants. So it's particularly damaging for what would develop into scrubland. So it's things like shrubs and trees. And so not so much uh, grazing on things like wildflowers or grasses it's more like that woody scrubby plant material that muntjac particularly like which really does reduce the quality of scrubland yeah. for for the um nightingale which again reduces their breeding habitat opens them up to threats from predators all sorts of issues here's here's a fact there are now more people named nightingale than there are singing nightingales in this country that is quite sad that's quite sad isn't it um yeah then alongside the muntjac deer and and developments uh we also again mentioned in a lot of our species episodes is changing in farmland um, and the structure of the countryside both here and also in their wintering grounds in africa they're sort of being hit on both fronts um which is not great uh, I don't know whether you've got any other information around farming or whether you want me to move on to some, some more climate change stuff. No, I mean, I, again, I was going to mention the fact that um, fragmented landscape is another area where, you know, it's affecting nightingales. So we're we're fragmenting their territories, and we've talked about that yeah. a, across a number of species. You, yeah, you get little isolated pockets. Get isolated than... pockets, and that's happening a, an awful lot. I just wanted to go back and just touch on... Um, Kent being such an important stronghold and the pressures, for, for example, showing you a pressure in that particular area on, on nightingales. One of the most important places is a place called Lodge Hill. And Lodge Hill used to be, I think it used to be a Ministry of Defence area, you know, a bit like in Salisbury where yeah. they, they do practice manoeuvres and things like that. And it was an old Ministry of Defence area, but it became a site of special scientific interest. And it's it's a huge stronghold. It is the most important area in the country for nightingale populations, and they are campaigning so hard against a a planning application for I think it's two thousand houses to be built on Lodge Hill, and this campaign has been going on for a couple of years. I think they've managed to get it down to only four hundred houses now, but this campaign goes on and on and on, and these are all the pressures. The the 
danger, the risk to the nightingale population. It'll be devastating if this, uh, you know, this planning is is allowed. Yeah, and that so actually, that's happening more and more. Well, that links in really nicely with the idea, or not nicely, but it links in well to the idea of um, fragmented habitat populations because if it is a fragmented population and then they you lose that there's nowhere for them to go they can't hop into a nearby because the nearby scrub might be in dorset and so it's not like you just push them back they are already really hanging on to the small pockets of habitat absolutely Um, and it's not very easy for them to just relocate because it's all fragmented across the southeast rather than being nice joined up habitat where they can move freely uh, which makes these developments just a real particular, just emphasises their threat. Uh, yeah, and there's so many threats that those developments, uh, you know, uh, risk to the nightingale, for example, even just an increase in predators such as cats. And because yeah. they are primarily ground nesting birds um, or low nesting birds, so it's it's not even just a disruption in the actual environment itself. It's all that bringing in dogs and people and yeah, I think predators. It was, it was and, the our curlew episode where you brought the fact that we've got like the highest population of foxes yes. for example and a lot of that is because of how well they do in our urban, yes, in urban environments. environments which yeah again just is and foxes obviously are a native animal and and not something that need to be demonized but by emphasizing the habitat that the foxes really enjoy whilst at the same time diminishing the cover and the shrubland available for not just nightingales but ground nesting birds yeah. in general again there, there's always going to be a bit of natural predation between foxes and ground nesting birds but we just start tipping the scales too far in the favor of the predators um yeah and given, and, so. and given the fact that that statistic i gave you earlier on about a 90 percent decline the nightingale population just cannot sustain um any more <laughs> any more threats really so it's really important that we keep campaigning against these uh, these developments again i don't want to get political but it was just having done this article specifically for um for kent and this area all about nightingales it it, it made me angry i can't <laughs> deny it it did I, I, more and more i was sitting there with steam coming out of my ears but because we don't we don't we never seem to we never seem to latch on to what's really important and people obviously housing is important but i'll stop there i'll stop there anyway yeah do you want to talk about i've got uh, this the, isn't the climate yeah, so I've got a little bit on climate change. The the study I found quite interesting is actually um, based on Spanish populations, not uh, the UK ones, but it's still just an interesting thing. First of all, we've mentioned this with quite a few of the migratory species that we've covered, but as climate change progresses, the migratory season can shift because sometimes spring comes early or later. It essentially just changes the, the yearly timeline, um, which then impacts when not just birds sometimes it's insects and fish as well migrate and then sometimes they turn up to where they um sort of go to breed and it's the season hasn't hit that part of the world yet and so their food sources aren't there and there's not a huge amount of research into how much of an impact climate change is having on migration but it's quite a sort of logical argument that that we'll start seeing it have have an impact on migratory species But the study I found is the fact that climate change and drought, and so the increased prevalence and severity of drought, might be leading to smaller wings in nightingales, which actually therefore leads into a bigger disruption of their migration, because having long wings is an adaptation for migration, because it means obviously they can fly a lot further. And and they have a long way to go. Yeah, and expend less effort. So 
Spanish researchers found that two populations in central Spain are finding that their average wing length relative to body size has decreased over the last two decades. Uh, and what they think is causing this is the fact that timing of spring has shifted in central Spain and summer droughts are becoming longer and more intense, leaving nightingales a much shorter window to raise their young uh, before they've essentially yeah. got, got to get out. Um, so if the presence of drought is leading the most successful birds to be the ones that are laying smaller clutches of eggs with fewer to feed so they can re- yeah. rear them a lot more quickly, this could go hand in hand with losing a other traits so it's again a really difficult thing to pinpoint down the sort of causation uh, but if they're seeing small clutches quickly reared birds maybe feeding is having something to do with the growth of wings not too sure they haven't really gone into oh, that's that really but interesting, essentially though. as the droughts become severe and they're running shorter on the amount of time to rear their young the birds that are surviving are having smaller clutches fewer birds and they are developing shorter wings so yeah. they've put a connection in there exactly why if whether it is a dietary thing or the amount of time that they have to rear them not too sure but that is the the correlation anyway that they found uh, and this would end up being an example of what's known as a mal- maladaptation where a species response to cope with changing conditions actually hurts them in the long run so they're adjusting to the climate change trying to survive having fewer eggs rearing them quicker but it's leading to an adaptation that's not suited to their lifestyle shorter wings are not good for migratory birds Um, and they have actually found that these shorter winged birds are much less likely to return to their breeding site after the first trip to africa so whether it's fatalities or whether they're not traveling as far as spain and they're stopping earlier it doesn't say but the shorter winged birds once they've been tagged and they've left spain are not coming back as frequently so they're not being found again so as it said there's no information about whether they're not making their journey back to africa or they're dying or whether it's just that they're not migrating as far and they're actually stopping much earlier on their trip and that would make sense if they've got shorter wings yeah they've run out of energy quicker so maybe they're not making it to spain anymore considering spain's quite close to africa and and the migration route there's not really that much option beforehand for them to stop unless it's just somewhere else in africa so yeah it's an interesting one it's quite it's interesting yeah, preliminary it's interesting. study and obviously it's based in spain and not the uk but it just emphasizes that impact of climate change drought it's not just that i don't know maybe they migrate a bit earlier but it can actually lead to adaptations which are detrimental to the lifestyle that they rely on and it's great that people are actually doing this study I isn't know. It? and it's such a not something i'd even that is such a niche thing to, to yeah do, it's, isn't it? it's interesting because i i always think oh yeah the, the seasons change length or droughts so okay maybe we don't see as many birds um I don't know, making it all the way because they'll stop earlier yeah. or because there's enough food there, whereas normally they'd have to come much further north or whatever it is that changes their migration. You don't think of them, it's almost like watching evolution play out. You don't think of them having fewer eggs or the ones no. that survive have fewer no. eggs because they can rear their young more quickly because yeah, they've only got they're, to feed they're... three instead of six or whatever. Yeah. And you just don't really think of no. the, the chain reaction of we've got droughts, the birds that have lots of young aren't surviving so it leads to populations with these different traits wow. and it is almost like watching evolution sort of yeah and i mean i place. have read i've read quite a few migratory stories about various birds that you know aren't coming as far north lots of stopping off they're coming from africa and lots of stopping off 
in southern Europe or middle Europe because they've actually decided there's enough food there for them um, as climate changes. Um, but that is a really interesting... Yeah. I, again, I hadn't hadn't read anything no, no, about that. That's a really interesting... It's important to note that it's, it's just study, a single though, study, mm. but they're, they're, it did seem to imply a link between... And like you say, that's that's almost sort of watching evolution yeah, but in a, <laughs> at, at play, really. And again, it's an interesting... You People always think, and I think it's a, an easy assumption to make, that any adaptation to change will be positive. Yeah. And in a sense, it is. It, it means they can rear their young, but it's leading to something that they're... Yeah impacts the rest of their lifestyle so the, the the short-term adaptation of handling drought then stops them from being quite so successful in their migrations and so it's a real complex issue for them to actually handle this rapid climate change yeah. and they are obviously having to adapt very very quickly this is just two decades whereas if you think evolution takes place over spans of yeah, mil- millions, millions of years, millions of yeah. years the rapid changing climate is forcing populations of species to adapt mm. quickly or die but those adaptations aren't all going to be positive. But it was an interesting. Yeah, study. that is interesting. That's a that's a really good um, that's a good bit of info actually that but you found there. I like that. Might be time to move on to the slightly more positive side of things. The people who are working hard to yeah, help and there are nightingales. There and are, as always, there are there are quite a few. RSPB is heavily involved in most of them actually. Woodland um, Trust is another Woodland big one. Trust is another one, and also the things that that these organisations are concentrating on most of it. The majority of the focus has got to be on habitat because um, that is all that is going to help yeah, nightingales. We, we've mentioned the sort of habitat they like, and it, I think the quote I got from uh, one of the, I think it might be in the Woodland Trust, was the fact that in any of these conservation projects understanding the real fine points of habitat requirement yeah. is is really crucial but for nightingales this is just really really for, for... it's hugely important and it's not just about leaving something to go to scrubland because that scrubland actually also needs managing and because they need regeneration of scrubland they don't like old woody scrubland that's been there you know and, and dying down it needs to be completely or continually regenerating so that that scrubland and that habitat needs to be managed on a cyclical basis um i think i've got sort of a it involves rotational cutting yeah. in a 10 to 15 yeah, year exactly cycle that. so it's, it's a long-term yeah. project you can't just go and create some scrubland and no dust absolutely. your hands off when you're done it's a it's a continual thing because they they really like coppiced woodland yeah but not too dense because the trees then outcompete the plants and it leaves the ground all bare but not completely cut and short as well because they want some of the woodland cover so yeah it's a real exactly because if you if you leave out. scrub for too long it'll ultimately turn into woodland and that's not good so it, it you know like you say coppiced woodland yeah, is, but not too coppiced. no so it's very it is very specific and it's um uh, you know, and obviously that creates its own problems. But there are organisations um, that are working away. There's lots of projects. There's one a project going on in in Norfolk, um, Hampshire, and Isle of Wight Wildlife Trust are doing a recovery project there. They're working with the BTO. Quite a lot of it's actually um, surveying as well. And I was sur- just going yeah, to say a lot of out. volunteers to to survey. Um, yeah, so we can see where the population is yeah. surviving and which, because some of their habitat preferences have actually ch- are changing. Yeah. Again, because of all the stuff going on and so the surveys are invaluable for working out where they are where they're surviving and which habitats that we have that they're loving and where they're missing yeah 
Yeah, I think Norfolk, in Norfolk, there's a project going on. I think it's called the Nightingale Nights Scheme. And they, they're asking, um, obviously, bird lovers and what have you to record the sound of the bird's song and upload it to a, web, a website. Um, and then they're encouraged to sign petitions to, yeah. you know, to campaign against development and what have you. So there are all sorts. But really, the they say the, the biggest thing is to is to recreate or protect the the habitat um and there's a reference also i did find out a reference that one of the one of the most successful or remarkable and surprising successes for uh, nightingales is at the nepa state yeah they are doing quite um, well. and they're leaving areas of scrubland they're they're managing it but they're leaving areas of scrub and i thought i read they've got 40 singing uh, males now at um NEP, at NEP. which is which is incredible, yeah, it's and it's been mold. a it's been a fantastic recovery. And again, we we say this so many times that if you leave nature to do it, or at like, least yeah, to a certain extent, um, you know they'll come back and they will yeah, so they will populate that that ideal habitat and quite quickly. Yeah. But it is it's interesting because we always like the idea of just letting nature do its thing. And then we sit here and talk about how we need specific <laughs> specific in. habitat. Yeah, but I think the the clarification I'd, I'd make there is if you remove human development, agriculture, industry, our housing, everything, and let nature do its thing, then you'd get a nice mix yeah, of scrubland exactly, and woodland. Yeah. Because now, as we've said multiple times, everything's so fragmented, and the habitats are little pockets. We sort of have to artificially recreate what would happen across the entire country. Yeah in smaller areas because an area that would maybe have only been woodland without scrubland would have been fine because there's probably hundreds of acres of scrubland elsewhere whereas that's all gone so we have to balance it out we have to artificially create it so it's always an important thing because we always like to say just let nature do its thing and then we sit here and say actually it's got to be managed really carefully but that's only because of the amount of change that happened in our landscape naturally it would have been fine but we've got to find a way for humans and nature to coexist, which means we've got to help yeah. compensate for our impact, really. Um, but, it, you know, it is a bird in serious, yeah. serious trouble. And um, and I, I, I love it when I read about all of these little organisations and big organisations that are, are working really hard to try and to try and do something, to try and help and recognising that they're in um, trouble recognizing that which again that how dramatic that that problem is that again really shows off the importance of survey and data collection through not not just citizen scientists but citizen scientists and and just organizations like the bto and across not just the uk but across all of europe um like obviously researchers we've mentioned in spain the the monitoring of these populations if if that's not happening then by the time we realize they're in decline it might be too late so really shows how important surveys really are yeah um which again we've, we've spoken about the fact it's so hard to employ thousands of people to survey and so citizen scientists voluntarily going out and being like i've seen a nightingale in kent oh we've only seen five in this patch where last year we saw 10 is really really yeah. important because then it it will isolate and and sort of show off where the problems are and then these organizations yeah. can swoop in to, yeah through all through all of help. this research and looking at all of these projects and that are going on obviously mostly in the south of england um all of them call for volunteer yeah um it's, it's input, so and it's important. it's, it's also vital. quite empowering because it's a nice way that people who have an interest in wildlife who don't do it as a job can have an impact yeah. on their wildlife yeah. and it's a, it's it's a nice thing to do because we all sit here 
a bit doom and gloom about what's happening to our wildlife and so if you can go out for a day and and, and help it's a really nice way to feel like you're helping your wildlife well I, i'm i'm pretty convinced that anybody um who hears the song of a nightingale would, want to save would want to help that bird because it's just it's it is almost spiritual listening to a nightingale it's so well like the fact so that they beautiful. can move poets and yeah. songwriters i think that's that's really indicative of yeah of the emotion that the definitely that yeah. the song carries uh, the last couple of things I'll mention on conservation is obviously I, I spoke about the impact of deer and so fencing deer out of yeah. patches of scrubland is, is another really important way to maintain the quality of habitat. Uh, and I quite like this term scrub mosaics. Yes, I've got that written yeah, down. So actually. I've got coarse grained scrub mosaic. Yeah, which got, is just yeah. a nice collection of words. And, and yeah. We've spoken about the, the need to understand their specific requirements and so when we're doing this uh, habitat management really what you're aiming for is dense continuous vegetation of about two meters above ground and then like i said uh, bare patches and shorter vegetation for feeding and it's where you get both of these habitats next to each other that they really thrive and that is apparently known as scrub mosaics because yeah. small isolated scrubs don't do very well they need for nightingales they need a mosaic of yeah. dense not dense. I yeah. just thought it was quite a nice term. Yes, I, I liked that. I liked that. But on a last... Have s- you got more? This is just a sour note. Maybe not the one. Ah, okay. Not, but I just thought... We, we've spoken about how the fact that this habitat has to be managed. You can't just let it run wild completely. It's just a an example of the fact when that goes... Not goes wrong, but what happens if you don't manage it? Paxton Pitts which is a Cambridgeshire nature reserve, had 25 singing males in 2009, but now have none. And it's believed that it was just left for too long. The tree cover became too dense, outcompeted the scrubby lands, so all the shorter vegetation died off, and it essentially became a woodland, which we all like woodlands, but it has resulted in nightingales just not living there anymore. So it really shows the the continual need for good management and the fact that these birds sort of need proper helping hand rather well than... i guess all the time you've got places like nep um recognizing that habitat yeah. and more and more um you know people can read about that and see what see this how successful it's been at places like the nep estate um you know you've got to hope that people recognize what yeah. they have to do to, 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 and to on help that, you know to so... end on the positive note because it's not end on paxton pits is the Wildlife Trust, BTO, all these people that are conducting surveys, what they're also doing beyond using the data to understand where our populations are is they actually take that information to big landowners, yeah. farmers, uh, people who well, just have large estates or whatever it is that they own and advise them on the small changes that they can do to increase that connectivity of habitats. If there's a woodland and scrubland nearby, a farmer can keep a bit of their edge habitat. So there's little areas for Actually, that's a huge thing, that education of um, farmers and landowners. A lot of the time, having a a more biodiverse area around farmland is great for pest control. You know, nightingales would go and eat a lot of insects, and there are a lot of insect pests. So it's a really important thing to have that healthy ecosystem. Well, they proved that at Wild Ken Hill, didn't they? Yeah. They proved that leaving those edges of the fields to, to grow, you know, wildflowers and what have you, the insects come in, insects are pr- predators for the aphid and stuff yeah. that, you know, feed on the crops, all of those things. So it's, it's all a, a nice cycle. Self, self-generating uh, solution, yeah. really. And so, so if these organisations can go to big landowners, big farmers, and say that rather than having a really hard edge between your field and the woodland if you just leave x amount yeah. of land just as scrubland yeah. then that is hugely beneficial for our, our wildlife and there might also be benefits for the 
for the and crop as well. And I think that, well, that education is so important because you know there's no reason why a farmer would understand the needs of a nightingale no. and landowners would understand and the needs of a nightingale. So it wouldn't have been an issue. No, but it is now. Yeah, and so that education. I mean, we all they always get the the title of like stewards of the land or yeah. of, of, for farmers, and I think we are entering a phase where farmers need to become really embody that title where we they are essential for our food production but there's so much their land can do for wildlife as well just by dedicating a small barrier well i think they are border. i and think they are. i think, I think they are, are yeah. coming more and more on board to and we are entering that, that phase where the farmers are almost becoming rewild as yeah. just on a smaller scale yeah, absolutely yeah. around there and things. there's no reason why they can't continue to you know to do their commercial enterprise yeah. of farming on their land and help the wildlife um, as well it's been proved and and i think farmers are recognizing yeah, and this it's more also, and more now yeah, it's been shown that doing that often increases the health of the soil yeah. and all sorts of stuff that benefits the farmer that the what we really need to see and again we don't get too political but the thing you need to see is um incentives for farmers to do, yeah. whether it's bursaries or, yeah. or stite, like subsidies around okay if you take whatever percentage of your land and rewild it you'll get x amount of money i'm pretty sure you're so. not going to get that from rishi no. <laughs> but but it's, it's it, they are the sort of schemes that are often spoken about and it is that idea of really integrating farmers into yeah. rewilding not seeing them as a separate well when thing. you think about it they're the ones that can probably make more impact quicker than yeah they got all than the anybody land. else they've got the land haven't so, they so they've got control of that land the so fact that even without these schemes if these organizations like the bto wildlife trust all of them can just go to landowners and just mm. educate them i mean this is why rspb as an example are and wwt are buying up tracts of land as fast as they can to stop it being developed on but of course they are fragmented you know yeah. they are just little pockets of land that they're, they're buying up to to rewild but we need to connect all of these yeah, and environments if you look at like a nice aerial shot of farmland just covering however yeah. much of the uk just having all the borders connecting yeah. of a mixture of a bit of woodland and scrubland not just for nightingales but the amount of species that would benefit yeah. from a slightly less monocultured habitat connecting through all the farms would would be huge well they've kind of proved that with the you know the the hedgerows disappearing yeah you know this simple thing like that isn't it that connection but it isn't i think it's a nice solution bringing farmers into the wildlife yeah conservation no, i read world. some really positive things about farmers really coming on board with this and yeah. i think that's and I it only happens fantastic. through the education because yeah. nobody's going to yeah. wake up with the knowledge of what a nightingale no, needs absolutely absolutely so um but that's potentially a whole other topic so we'll, we'll stop yeah. rambling about farmers and wildlife conservation um <laughs> but i wanted to end on something positive uh, which i think yeah that, there's always is... there's always positives and there's 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 loads of work being done um to try and protect the nightingales the one in kent this lodge hill site does worry me a lot but um but there but are people campaigning. People are campaigning really, really hard. As always. And they have got somewhere with it. They've reduced the amount of houses being built there. Which even that... It's not It's not taking away the whole development. But it's um, still an improvement. But it's still an improvement. So, um, But there we go. That is the Nightingale yes. and the issues that it faces. And I, I implore you. I mean, April to... About April to September, you'll hear them um, in various places. Kent, Norfolk, Suffolk. There are... I'll put some links at, up actually. If you are, if you do live in Kent, there are a number of sites in Kent: Bleen Woods, Cliff Pools, Northwood Hill. If you know those areas, 
um, of uh, strongholds for nightingales, and you're more than likely to hear them there. And if you live miles away, stick it on YouTube and just have a little listen. Yeah, it's it really fantastic. is an incredible sound. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you want to learn more, go and read Dad's article on nightingales. Yeah, it's up on the Kent and we'll Sussex um, well. Planning Network for Nature, and I will put those links up. I might have done it in the past, but we'll put those links we'll up. give it a little push. Um, and there's good articles on there that I've written about nightingales and swifts. Yeah, so, so go read all of them. Go and read all of them. No, it's a really, really good, it's a good um, thing resource, to actually. At. Yeah. There's loads and loads of good stuff on there. So uh, we'll leave you with that. Yeah, so thank you. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. And we'll catch you next time. Catch you next time. Thanks very much for listening. Bye. Bye.